Let me ask you a question before we start. No, wait a minute. Let me just stop again. This is an oral history interview with Governor Pete Wilson for the Robert J. Dole Institute of Politics at the University of Kansas. We're in Governor Wilson's Los, uh, Los Angeles law firm, Bingham McCutcheon. Today is Friday, October 26, 2007, and I'm Brian Williams. Governor, let's start with your first recollection of meeting with or being aware of Senator Dole. My first recollection is that I met him when he was serving as the, the chairman of the National Republican Committee, the Republican National Committee. Uh, and it was during a challenging time. It was during the post-Watergate era. And uh, I was struck not only by his presence, uh, he was a very forceful presence. He was very articulate. He was very witty and uh, very tough on the Democratic opposition. Uh, he came to a fundraising event in Orange County and uh, was very businesslike. Uh, he had to not only make that appearance that evening and then had to go on to his next, I've forgotten what his destination was, but he had to be there that night. And I was very much taken with the energy and the focus that he displayed. And uh, the audience loved it, of course, loved his witty wisecracks, and uh, he was giving them hell as he can do. And um, I was as much taken with him. I thought uh, he's a tough, smart guy and uh, a leader. And at what point, where was this in your own uh, career? Um, it was while I was still mayor. I had not yet run for the Senate which I did do in 1982, but uh, he, was, <laughs> he was quite a presence. Did, did you uh, have a personal exchange with him at that time? Yes, we sat next to one another and had a, a very pleasant conversation. And I uh, enjoyed it and became a Dole fan. I, I was already a Dole fan, just having observed him from afar. So was your next contact with him when you entered the Senate, or were there other times in between? Oh, I think there were a couple of other times in between um, when he'd come to California, but uh, and he came out to campaign for me uh, with Ted Stevens when I was running, and I very much enjoyed both the fact that he came and was obviously a terrific asset and uh, a great draw, but just enjoyed being with him. Now, you, uh, you decided to run when Senator Hayakawa retired, is that right? Well, actually, Senator Hayakawa was still in office. He had suffered uh, some illness, and it looked very much as though uh, he were not going to run again. He had not announced his retirement at that point, but 
the conventional wisdom was that he was not going to run again. In fact, uh, Congressman McCloskey, uh, Congressman Goldwater, um, at least those two had already declared for uh, his seat at that point. It was about, oh, a good 15 months before the election. So you joined them in, in being a, another candidate. For, I did. For, for governor, or for Senate, right. Um, and did the National Party uh, give you all guidance or make selection among you, or did you, it was just a matter of... No, the- no, it was, uh, it was a very crowded field. Uh, shortly thereafter, Senator Hayakawa did announce his retirement. And there were, I think, a dozen candidates and about half a dozen who um, had some considerable name recognition. Uh, For a time, it was sort of the children of famous fathers uh, because... The Democratic nominee quite obviously was going to be Governor Brown, the son of Governor Pat Brown, and um, Barry Goldwater Jr., Congressman Goldwater, and also uh, Congressman Pete McCloskey, uh, also Maureen Reagan, the daughter of the president, and Congressman Bob Dornan. So... It was a crowded field with names that were known to at least those paying attention to politics. So you won the primary. I did. And then you campaigned against Jerry Brown. And I know this is off the main line of this uh, interview, but just a little bit of the flavor of that uh, campaign. How, how, how did that go? Well, it was a very interesting experience, I think, for both Uh, then-Governor Brown, now our Attorney General in California. And for me, uh, the day after the primary, which was in June of 1982, a poll indicated that I was leading Governor Brown by 14 points, which was a very interesting phenomenon, given the fact that easily half the Democrats... Uh, had never heard of me. Uh, California is a huge state. And I remember that when uh, Ed Davis, the former chief of police of Los Angeles County, a very gregarious, um, very flamboyant, colorful candidate, as well as office holder, when he ran for governor, when he began... He had 100% name ID south of the Tehachapi's, sort of a dividing line between northern and southern California. But almost no one north of that knew him, which was astounding to those of us in southern California. But in the case of my race with Jerry Brown, it signified that his second term in office had not been one that might lead to a third. But in any case, um, what happened was that he had almost no primary opposition and had been busily raising funds, wisely raising funds, 
And the conventional wisdom was that general election campaigns really did not start until Labor Day. That if you spent money before that, you were wasting it because no one was paying attention. He had concluded when he saw that poll that if he did not confront B at a time when I did not have any money, and he did, that he would be too late if he waited until Labor Day. And it was a very shrewd tactical decision. And so he spent about $2 million over the course of the summer on some very effective, if I thought slightly unethical, advertising. And by the time Labor Day came, I was about eight points down. So that was a 22-point movement. Uh, We spent the summer unable to respond to his attacks except by earned media, not by any paid advertising. And earned media in a state this size against paid advertising loses. And we did succeed in raising a substantial war chest, which empowered us by the time September came to begin to respond. And we responded with alacrity. And as we did so, the numbers changed once again, and I wound up uh, winning by a comfortable margin. Certainly, uh, there was nothing like a recount in store. To his credit, he called the next morning and he said, I hope that you didn't take any of my, uh, he didn't use the word attacks, any, any of my campaigning personally. Well, I in fact had, but after what was probably a prolonged silence, I said, well, thank you for your call. And he said some very gracious things. He said, I think you'll be a very effective senator and wish you well. Um, But it was a a very interesting campaign and it went uh, up and down at least twice. So well, actually, uh, 82 was not the best of years for the Republicans. No, it was not. In fact, the entering class of freshmen to the Senate consisted of five members, three Republicans and two Democrats. And um, it was also during the campaign a time of recession. So it was not the easiest time to, to run, but... Were you able to uh, attach yourself to Reagan and the Reagan program as a candidate, or did you have to distance yourself some from that? Because of well, that? you know, the interesting thing is that I was a great admirer of the president. I had served with him when he was governor, and I was in the legislature. I was the minority whip. But um, we, uh, we had some honest differences, Uh, at the time that I was campaigning, and I know that some of them irked his staff, he had agreed to a tax increase, which I thought unwise. I frankly did not trust the Democratic majorities uh, in the House or the Senate to keep their word to the president 
that for every dollar of tax increase, they would be willing to cut spending $2. I just did not believe that. I told the president as much. He later said, well, you were right and I was wrong. They didn't. But um, at the time, why his staff, loyal to him as properly they should have been, uh, were offended by my taking a different stance. So how would you describe the culture of the Senate when you arrived in 1983? Well, we had... um, a Republican leader in the Senate and uh, one who was uh, deservedly the recipient of both affection and great respect, Howard Baker. And Howard did a very good job. And he, um, I think, steered uh, the president's agenda in the Senate, um, was a very good representative of the Senate to the president and a very good uh, leader who I think was respected and very much liked uh, on both sides of the aisle. But though I don't think that the climate was then nearly as toxic as it has become, you know, on certain issues there was definitely partisanship. And uh, I think Howard was effective as the Republican leader. Bob certainly was uh, effective as one of his chief uh, co-leaders. I think it's become much worse, frankly. I think it's become much more partisan. But in my time in the Senate, I saw, I thought, a serious deterioration that was most visible in terms of confirmation processes that really had been corrupted. They'd become um, attacks on the appointing authority as well as attacks upon the individuals who were up for confirmation. I saw that in terms of the uh, denial of confirmation to Judge Bork. Uh, I saw it Uh, painfully and in a way that excited my, not just my strong opposition, but candidly my contempt uh, in the denial of confirmation to John Tower as Secretary of Defense. And then just about the time I was leaving, uh, I saw the effort to deny confirmation, the unsuccessful effort, happily, to Clarence Thomas for the Supreme Court. Um, where was, uh, let's see, did you share uh, um, committee assignments with Dole, or you were not on finance or agriculture? Or yes, I was on agriculture, not on finance. And prior to his becoming leader, uh, what would you say about his leadership skills at the committee level? <laughs> They were damned effective. As the chairman of the finance committee, uh, I saw him come out uh, on the floor with uh, a bill that was really an amendment or multiple amendments to the Internal Revenue Code. 
And I had about five amendments that I was offering, and I was hardly alone in wanting to make that many amendments. Uh, he came out on the floor at about six o'clock, and he said, Presently, we have 140 amendments. He said, uh, I want to tell you that that's too many. So I want you all to think long and hard about which are the most important to you, and then come and tell the staff here which ones you are serious about. And he said, please do not be serious about all of them. And he said, I'll be back in an hour to see what progress we've made. He came back in an hour. <laughs> he said, I don't think I was quite clear because we now have over 260 amendments. He said, since you have proved incapable of making a decision about which were important, we'll make them for you if you don't, in the next hour, come forward with your choice. And he said, as a guide to you, if you've offered five amendments, consider which two may be most important. So there were all kinds of us bleeding all over the floor, uh, whining about which amendments were the most important and why all of ours were absolutely critical. And uh, he would have none of it and said, pick them. And uh, so I picked my two. I think I finally worked in a third. But uh, he said, he said, it, and he said, friends, it's going to be a long evening, which it was. I mean, it went well on into the small hours of the morning. And we finally, uh, I think, got it done. Um, oh, I say something like five, five thirty in the morning. And as I recall, he had also selected a Friday night before the recess, <laughs> just just to make the point that it was going to be a long evening for those who had hoped to get away. And I think some just went after they picked one or two and gotten either gotten what they wanted or had failed to and took off for the recess. I remember that I walked off the floor, walked home. I was living on the uh, south side of the Capitol Hill behind the uh, Library of Congress and walked in. My wife was sleeping. I tried not to wake her up, but I just went up and shaved and showered and got ready to go to go to the airport. Were you all doing this cutting back to uh, two from five or whatever individually, or were you working in groups sort of trying to get the job done? It was mostly, um, I, I think the committee knew, obviously the committee had worked with the members of the committee, and being a member of the committee obviously gave you uh, some greater access, uh, also greater knowledge as to what was going to be tolerated. And those who are not members of the committee, you know, were pretty much on their own, although they worked with the staff, and the staff were helpful. Um, talk about the transition then from Baker leadership to Dole leadership. 
Um, Bob was thought to be uh, a little more combative, but actually he was, I thought, very effective. Uh, he worked well with a couple of different Democratic leaders. Uh, when Bob Byrd moved from uh, being the chairman of appropriations or the ranking member and, and chairman alternately uh, and became the leader, he was regarded as extremely partisan by the Republicans. I think that was uh, deservedly. Uh, when he was subsequently relieved of that responsibility by his own decision, and I guess that of his caucus, to become the chairman of appropriations and be replaced by George Mitchell, we were all quite pleased because we thought George was pretty much a hill fellow, well met, bright, but uh, reasonable. And he turned out to be a hell of a lot more partisan than, than Bob Byrd. Uh, but I think that, uh, you know, Bob was certainly a match when it came to be, uh, came time to be uh, tough and defend a position that was important to us. You know, he was a warrior. Now, his selection or election as the leader was, uh, he won very, by a very small margin. I think there were five members of the Senate running in that election. <clears throat> Did everyone pull together pretty quickly once he was selected as the leader? Yes. Yes, they did. And, of course, the old joke at the time of these leadership elections is that when the different candidates for a particular office have gone out soliciting support from their colleagues, you know, some find it difficult to say no. And so they say yes to everybody that asks them. So that you wind up with, let's say, a caucus of uh, 54 Republican senators and something like 187 support votes have been uh, tallied by the different candidates. They're just some who can't quite face saying no. Um, so what words would you, you said tough a moment ago, what other adjectives would you apply to Dole's leader? Very bright. Um, good strategist, good tactician. Um, he knew when to push and uh, how hard to push. And also, uh, once again, I think his wit was a considerable asset to him. Uh, people enjoyed the fact that in the midst of what was serious business, he uh, was capable of bringing a light touch, and sometimes that was a useful way to do relieve some of the tension and, and diffuse some of the, the growing uh, hostility. I remember one uh, inst instance in particular, I remember many, but at one point while well, Howard Baker, I think was, I think my recollection is correct, was still a leader, 
there was a debate on whether or not we should do away, as we eventually did, with honoraria for sitting members of the Senate. And um, not surprisingly, Bob had been in great demand because he was not only the chairman of an important committee, but he was also a very entertaining speaker. And at some point, the leader, Howard Baker, received a question from someone, another senator on the floor. And um, he hesitated for a moment, and then he turned and he looked at Bob, who was at his desk, and he said, I think I will uh, refer that question to the distinguished chairman of the Finance Committee. And Bob was standing, as was Howard. And Bob had been looking at Howard, but when Howard said that, he just turned his back. <laughs> and Howard was a little nonplussed. You know, he expected Bob to pick up on it and respond to the question. And so after a moment of silence, Howard said, I said, I think I will refer that to the distinguished chairman of the Finance Committee. And once again, Bob said nothing. And so finally, Howard said, Senator Dole? And Bob turned and over his shoulder said to Howard, he said, I'm not saying anything until I get paid. <laughs> Which uh, brought the house and the gallery down. But he was, he was capable of uh, adding a little levity at many times. You say you have uh, many instances of that. While, while we're on this topic, can you think of a couple of other times when his wit was uh, outstanding? Um, well, once at my expense, he had said, uh, after I came into the Senate floor in a wheelchair with um, tubes and bottles and in, a, in an Air Force bathrobe. I couldn't quite figure out why from a naval hospital I was in an Air Force bathrobe. But in any case, I was to cast the deciding vote. Uh, deciding in the sense that it was the tie-making vote, which gave George H.W. Bush, then Vice President, the excruciating pleasure of casting the tie-breaking vote. Later, Bob would say and said a couple of times in my presence telling this story. He said, uh, of course, Pete was under sedation. He does better under sedation. So about the third time he said that, I said, Bob, the only time that I was under sedation was when I cast a vote for you for leader. He said, okay, that's enough. We won't use that gag any longer. <laughs> any others that come to mind right now? Oh, they, they will. Some. Uh, well, don't hesitate to, to share them with us. Um, since you mentioned that, of course, that's one of the most famous uh, stories about his time uh, in the Senate and yours. <clears throat> um, back up for a moment. How did you get the call? You were... You were why were you in the hospital? Uh, 
I was in the naval hospital because I had suffered um, or required an emergency appendectomy. And I had been scheduled with my wife to go to a party on Saturday night in Washington that she was very much looking forward to. Big costume party, as I recall. And Saturday, I was in my office and was with someone. We went to lunch, came back, and I said, you know, I'm awfully sorry, but I am really not feeling very well. So I went home. And Gail was not home. And um, by the time she got there, I was distinctly uncomfortable. And to her great disappointment, we didn't go to this party. And the next morning, I felt somewhat better, but not not really, uh, something was still wrong. Well, as it turned out, I had probably on Saturday suffered a ruptured appendix. And by Tuesday, um, I was distinctly uncomfortable, but you know, I was going about my business. And Tuesday night, we had um, planned a dinner for a number of people who had been uh, donors of art to my Senate office, a number of famous artists uh, and some of the people who had collected their works had visited the office and thought that it would look a little Spartan and could use a little color. So we would we had arranged a, a dinner, uh, a reception honoring them, these California artists, and uh, and Fred Wiseman, who was a collector and had generously loaned these pieces to us. And we had a reception, and then afterwards we went to dinner. And about 9.30 or so, I got up to make a brief speech expressing my thanks and pleasure at their generosity. And when I sat down, my wife said, I knew something was wrong because you just went like this. And she said, I've never seen you do anything like that. And she said, I looked at your face and you're obviously in pain. She was right, I was. So we went home and I couldn't sleep. Uh, I was awake all night and I finally got up and just walked around the house. That was the best way to obtain what relief I could. And about 6.30 in the morning, I called my chief of staff and uh, he called the attending physician uh, of the Capitol and the attending physician called Bethesda and arranged for me to come out there at the earliest possible moment. And um, Bob White, my chief of staff, came over and drove me out and I got checked into Bethesda and uh, I don't remember too much after that because I think they came in and gave me the anesthetic but they didn't operate I discovered until about 4.30 in the afternoon 
and um, but they dropped quite a load of anesthetic. So the next thing I knew, it was considerably after that, and uh, the surgeon and the anesthesiologist had come in to pay a visit and said, how do you feel? And I said, not terrific, but I think better, actually. And uh, they said, well, good. And uh, and later, after the surgeon had left, the anesthesiologist uh, said, that's a pretty good surgeon you've got. And I said, well, yeah, I'm happy to hear that. That's my, that was my hope and expectation. And uh, he said, it's a g- damn good thing that uh, you finally came in when you did because it's our analysis that your appendix had burst three days ago. And he said, fortunately, it had collected in a corner of your stomach. And he said, uh, said, it's a damn good thing that's 1985 and not 1955. And I said, well, why is that? He said, well, because in 1955, we didn't have the antibiotics that we have today. And I said, oh, my God, in World War II, you had sulfa, you had penicillin, he said, that's right. And he said, penicillin took three days to work. He said, you didn't have three more days. It was a little sobering. So the next day, the surgeon got a call shortly after I did <laughs> from Senator Dole saying, we need uh, Senator Wilson down here to vote. Uh, it's the most important deficit reduction vote and since we had deficits. And the surgeon was not at all pleased since it was a little, it would be a little, slightly more than 24 hours after the surgery when I finally was supposed to go and appear there. And uh, he said to me, how do you feel? And I said, I'm okay, I can do this. And uh, the other time came, and they loaded me onto a gurney, put me in an ambulance, and drove down from Bethesda to the Capitol. And by God, I think they hit every chuck hole on the way. Um, Because by the time I got there, I was glad to be there and no longer in the ambulance. So they put me into, uh, uh, well, I should... Before that happened, uh, people were leaning out the windows of the Senate side of the Capitol, including Senator Cohen and Senator Rudman, two friends, and uh, cheering and applauding as I came in on the gurney, looking a little wan. And uh, I remember Rudman turning to Cohen and saying, how the hell do you get an emergency appendectomy? Look at all these cameras. (laughs) And uh, so they took me into the leader's office, and uh, I got into a wheelchair, and they arranged the tubes and the bottles. 
And it was quite a while before they got back to the business that had occasioned my my ride down in the ambulance. <clears throat> and when I came in, it was through the back doors, the rear of the chamber, and uh, to a standing ovation from my colleagues. And uh, the president said, uh, Senator Wilson, how do you vote? And I said, what is the question? Which occasioned laughter. And I then voted uh, as instructed uh, for this most serious deficit reduction reform, which tied the vote. And uh, poor Jim Exxon had gone into Bethesda the day after I was into uh, into the hospital and could not they couldn't retrieve him and another of our colleagues Senator Eastman was uh, in the hospital three absentees for medical reasons but I was the only one who was actually able to come back down and vote did you stick around for the resolution of it, or did you? Yeah, I did. I, I, I don't think I cast a vote until about one in the morning, but I know that I cast two or three more thereafter. So what time did you get back to the hospital? Uh, in the wee hours, I would guess it was probably something like three or four. Excuse me. So uh, then you returned to the hospital, and then a few days later came back. Um, about a week later. About a week later. Um, you mentioned the Bork and Tower nominations and so forth, and uh, there are a lot of other contentious issues during the time that you were in the in the Senate. Before we talk about those things specifically, what are your observations of how Dole? performed as leader with those kinds of hot topics? He was, I think, a very effective leader. Uh, when he was the majority leader, and I saw him functioning as both majority and minority leader, I thought he was very effective. Um, he was realistic and there were certain times when we simply, you know, had to, uh, as the minority, cast votes and uh, know that we were going to lose because we simply didn't have the votes. <clears throat> but he was very effective in, in mobilizing uh, the maximum effort. And I think that, you know, there, were, there are occasions when any leader confronts the reality that some of the people in his caucus either have honest disagreement or are trying to avoid what they are fearful of uh, being a really a killer vote. I think most instances when they think a vote is going to kill them, they're wrong. Uh, they can survive it if they've got valid reasons. But, you know, there are also times when they're probably right simply because of the fact that they're in a state where they're uh, heavily outnumbered in terms of the registration. 
of their constituents. And the vote that we have just been discussing, which was that vote that brought, brought me in on the gurney, um, which was a, the first serious deficit reduction vote, <clears throat> was one that turned out to be used very uh, heavily against six of our colleagues who subsequently were not reelected at the next election. Uh, some very good people went down because they were the victims of television spots that portrayed them as being anti-social security. Well, this vote was not anti-social security. It was not a cut. It was a reduction in the increase that was being sought. And that game is one that the Democrats play routinely. And unfortunately, with some success with some voters, you, you can't let them say that and fail to rebut it because otherwise the voters are laboring under a serious misapprehension. I mean, that's a false charge, but it's nonetheless one that's effective if believed. Do you think that uh, the media have any culpability in that, too? Or, or is yes. Oh, yeah, no question. I mean, there are certainly honest reporters. Um, most are, by their own response in one survey after another, those who have responded have portrayed themselves as voting for Democratic candidates by a hefty margin. And that's their privilege. What we ask is simple fairness, which is that they report the facts honestly rather than making editorial comment. And um, some do and some don't. When you came to the Senate, what did you feel was going to be your main causes? Well, I came from a state that uh, Senator Domenici once said, he said, it almost doesn't matter what your committee assignments are, given the diversity and the complexity of California's economy, you have to be interested in everything. And he was absolutely right about that. The committees that I served upon were the Senate Armed Services Committee, that was my so-called double A. Uh, I served on agriculture, and for one two-year period, I served on a third committee, third major committee, which was uh, commerce. Um, I very much enjoyed all of them. Agriculture, as it turned out, had less to do with agriculture in my state than it did in most of the states of the Midwest and South. There was uh, less dependency on subsidy programs. Uh, my chief interest in uh, the Agriculture Committee was in fighting protectionism against the, the export of California's specialty crops. And there was a lot of protectionism. Uh, a lot 
on both coasts, I'll put it that way, in Asia and in Europe. And so that took a good part of my time. Uh, I was extremely interested in uh, defense and foreign policy, which is why when the option, when, when it came to me as a freshman uh, to gain a seat on the Senate Armed Services Committee, I was eager to do so. And particularly because I was very strongly supportive of President Reagan's defense and foreign policy. I thought he was uh, extraordinarily effective. He was candid. He uh, called the evil empire what it was. Uh, He was a strong leader. He uh, created the impression that if, in fact, the Soviets wanted to engage in an arms race, it was too bad because they would lose it, and it would cost them a great deal. And um, I was supportive of, I think, virtually all of his initiatives and supportive of his negotiating stance, supporting, uh, supportive of uh, the dramatic initiative that he took with missile defense. Uh, I am convinced that that really led to the breakdown in the Soviet regime. I think that uh, Gorbachev recognized that confronted with that, he would be leading a nation uh, whose 800 billion ruble investment in offensive intercontinental ballistic missiles was suddenly threatened with complete obsolescence, and he was afraid, terribly afraid, that we, uh, holding not only the hammer that he held, but also the shield, would be in a position uh, to not only resist extortion at the, neg- at the bargaining table from the Soviet side, but actually engage in some from our side. And President Reagan uh, had made clear that what he wanted was to bring about a lessening of the nuclear threat, that he wanted to replace mutually assured destruction with mutually assured survival and prevent proliferation. And that was clearly the right stance because mutually assured destruction is a very perilous position. Um, Too many mishaps can lead to a nuclear exchange that would be then impossible to contain. If uh, Gorbachev hadn't essentially capitulated or realized he couldn't really afford this and had gone ahead with billions and billions of rubles in an upgrade and so forth, in your mind, where would that eventually have led us? To a safer world or to a more dangerous world? Or How do you see that? Well, I think it's, it's an academic question in the sense that he had decided he could not do that if he chose to. He also decided, I think, 
that it was not the part of wisdom even to try because he was convinced based on the efforts they had made, the attempts that they had made to build their own shield, that they weren't going to be successful, uh, that they simply lacked the technology and thought that we were well on the way. Uh, We were, I think, well on the way. I think one of the cardinal derelictions of the Clinton administration, which succeeded Reagan in office, was that about four months into the new administration, they essentially abandoned and dismantled the program. Uh, They squandered eight years and uh, not until uh, the second Bush administration was it resumed and I think that that was a serious mistake on the part of the Clinton administration. I mean the Bush the first Bush administration obviously continued and when they didn't um, I think they were making a very risky gamble a very ill-considered one, and uh, fortunately it's now, I think, been reversed. Though with the return of Democratic majorities, I don't think that uh, the, the program is beyond threats from some of the same people. Um, <clears throat> other issues during your time that were very important to you and, and perhaps contentious and so forth? Well, obviously, um, the Social Security system then as now was under threat from, uh, from a combination of spending and not actually funding the Social Security obligation. I mean, I thought the debate that went on during the first um, Bush the Bush-Gore race was absurd and and deliberately misleading the talk about a lockbox. And there was a fix that was, if temporary at least, one that uh, went in the right direction, and I think considerable credit for that was due to Bob, to Pat Moynihan, and to Bill Armstrong. Um, philosophically, Bill Armstrong and uh, Pat Moynihan probably were not soulmates. But Pat Moynihan was a realist, understood that a fix was required, and they brought about at least a temporary one. Talk a little bit about the Bork nomination. What did you see as the issues there? Well, I think a major issue was whether or not Judge Bork would, if presented with the opportunity, cast a vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, that was not the only issue, but it was one. Uh, I personally, though not pro-abortion, have been pro-choice. And when Judge Bork visited my office during 
the period leading up to the confirmation vote, I asked him about this, and I said, it seems to me that you've had an interesting philosophical odyssey uh, during your career, a very distinguished career, but it seems to me that you began as a liberal, um, became almost a libertarian, and now have come to a position that I would describe as conservative Republican. And uh, I find that very interesting. I wonder if you would agree with my analysis. He said, I think that's a fair comment. And I said, well, obviously that it bears upon uh, expectations as to what your position will be should you be confronted with a vote on uh, the Roe versus Wade decision that now stands in terms of uh, stare decisis as binding precedent. But as a member of the Supreme Court, obviously, that's the one court in the land that could overturn it. And I, I, I respect your position in not announcing a position that you're going to take on cases that may come before you. But I am curious as to whether or not you can address the general subject of stare decisis. And so let me put this question to you. Are there instances in which you think that the social fabric of the country has become so affected by a a decision of the court that you would find it difficult, even though you might not have been part of the majority that created that precedent, that you would find it difficult to overturn it because you think that it would create, if not turmoil, at least uncertainty and... uh, a great deal of uh, dislocation. And he said, that is a very good question, and it's one I have asked myself. And he said, it's difficult for me to answer. He said, but yes, I think that there are instances in which I could conceive that overturning a precedent would not be the correct thing to do. And I said, thank you. I don't have any further questions because we'd had a lengthy conversation. And I was greatly impressed with Bork. Um, I think he was an honest man. I think he was a thoughtful, extraordinarily bright man, a tremendous intellect. I voted for his confirmation. Um, But uh, I think that his denial of confirmation was the beginning of a very unhealthy trend in the Senate. Um, Really before that, people had not penalized nominees for 
had not denied confirmation to nominees because they had a basic disagreement with the appointing authority's position on an issue. And that, I think, was essentially the beginning of penalizing the nominee instead of determining the nominee's competence, the nominee's integrity. And um, it's a very sad thing because if you stop to think about it, the appointing authority is in the position of being the appointing authority because the people of the United States, a majority, have voted for him or her. It does seem, though, that the abortion issue is, is the litmus test. It's, it's a more profound issue than any others that come up in these. Well, um, it has been with Democrats. I think there's no question about that. Not that all Democrats are pro-choice. But uh, I do know that in the Democratic cloakroom, uh, arms have been not just twisted but broken on that issue. And I have even counseled Democratic friends who are thinking about running for the Senate that they ought to think long and hard about they're going to be comfortable whether they can be comfortable in that kind of a political environment. Um, we didn't have that same pressure. I mean, Bob Dole certainly tried to round up votes for what was the majority position, did a very good job. But um, there was also, I think, the expectation that People who said, I don't believe in this position, I'm not going to take it, let's not discuss it further. You'll hear my views if you haven't heard them already when uh, we have that vote on the floor. Would you talk for a moment about the Iran-Contra issue? Um, I haven't had the opportunity to talk to too many people about that. Um, it seemed to me, living through that period, uh, people got off easy. How, how do you feel about that, or what were the circumstances? Got off easy in the In the sense that it wasn't sort of probed all the way. The, the, the making of the deal and who was in on it, and I suppose specifically George Bush's uh, possible participation. Um, I don't know, because I was not on the committee that investigated it. I followed it, obviously. Um, I think that that probably was better conducted than some of the independent counsel inquiries. But... I think there's been some bipartisan disillusionment. Uh, interestingly, I think Warren Rudman, who did participate in it uh, and tried to keep it an, a fair but honest and legitimate probe, has uh, 
has had some doubts about the wisdom of the independent council position since that time. Uh, I know that in private conversations he has expressed the uh, view that someone who is on the witness stand, under oath, making uh, a legitimate effort to try to remember things can be made to look very bad uh, by honest answers to questions on things that he legitimately cannot remember or can't remember with any precision. And he said, I don't care who you are, you can be made to look very bad. And he said, I have supported some of these by certainly by participating in them, but he said, I also think that there have been some that have been, I shouldn't say this, I don't want to quote him, but I mean, I think he's grown to have doubts, and I won't use, I won't put the words in his mouth, but I think that there are people, and uh, he might be among them, who think that they have that they're a very mixed blessing um, and that the only reason is to, to have that than, rather than leaving it in the hands of the people who have that responsibility under the law, not the independent council law. Um, the only time when you should not do that is when there is in fact evidence uh, to support the belief that the Justice Department is not capable of conducting a fair and an impartial investigation where one needs to be conducted. Just about the end of this tape, so I'm going to stop for just a moment. I want to ask you next about uh, the transition from the Reagan administration to the George Bush administration. What thoughts do you have on that? Well, I think that the significant difference seen by some um, had to do with the problem that uh, surrounded President Bush when having said uh, in his acceptance speech, read my lips, he was persuaded to go forward and support uh, a tax increase. Now, President Reagan had also supported a tax increase. I did not support either of them. But uh, in fairness to both, I will have to say that when you are a legislator, you don't have the same responsibilities as the President of the United States. When you're a state legislator, you don't have the same responsibility as the governor to balance the budget and effectively to set priorities by the vetoes that you cast. <clears throat> it's a very different role being the chief executive and being a legislator. Uh, a legislator is a representative of his constituency. His constituency is smaller than that of the chief executive. And accordingly, 
may present him with different priorities, different, uh, his constituency may have different priorities. Um, having said that, I, I thought that the grounds were not there for a tax increase in either case. I think in terms of foreign policy, President Bush, in his prosecution of the Gulf War, uh, continued very much in the same vein that you would have expected from Ronald Reagan. And uh, at one point had a support among the uh, popularity rating among the, po- the general public of something like 90%. And he lost uh, to a very clever, very astute, very uh, good campaigner, Bill Clinton, uh, was one of the most effective candidates for president that I think we've seen. And he uh, is a man of great charm. And I think that there's no question that his emphasis upon the economy uh, was what won him the White House in combination with the candidacy of Ross Perot. If Ross Perot had not taken, what, 18% of the vote, um, I think George Bush would have won a second term. But um, in his one term, I think that... uh, that President Bush had a somewhat different style. Uh, I do not think that he was as articulate a communicator as Ronald Reagan. Um, but I think he was uh, a a good leader. I think he did not. Um, inspire quite the same confidence in the party. But, you know, that came about during the campaign. And an interesting thing is that Bob Dole, who had actually um, sought the nomination for president himself in contention with uh, George H.W. Bush, Uh, demonstrated a side of his personality that I don't know that the public saw very often. They did on occasion. And that was that Bob has a deeply emotional side. I mean, he's a tough guy and uh, has uh, a considerable intellect. But what I saw on more than one occasion was that he was moved, uh, in some cases literally to tears. Uh, you saw that at Richard Nixon's funeral. I mean, he really was deeply moved. Uh, I saw the same thing after George Bush was defeated by Bill Clinton in the 92 election. Uh, Bob Dole came to uh, a winter meeting of the Republican Governors Association in Wisconsin. Tommy Thompson 
Governor Thompson of Wisconsin was the host. And at the luncheon, where Bob gave a very good speech, uh, at one point he genuinely choked up, and it was genuine, um, when he was talking about what I think he described as a, a valiant and honest fight the campaign conducted by George Bush. Um, that's a side of the man that I think is worthy of attention because what it really bespeaks is enormous loyalty. And um, it's loyalty to people, it's loyalty to causes, and it's a very appealing, very touching side of the man because it is clearly so genuine. And the most public uh, exhibition of it, perhaps, was when he returned to Kansas, returned to Russell. Uh, there's no question that he has a deep feeling about the people of Russell, about his own family, but about the people of Russell who really were wonderfully supportive to him as a young returning veteran from World War II, having been badly wounded, uh, who underwent the ordeal of, I think, something like 33 separate operations. Um, I mean, this is really quite a remarkable story, this handsome, um, athletic young man who um, I think was down to featherweight. He'd lost so much weight uh, and just been through hell as a result of the wounds that he sustained in, uh, in Italy. Um, I mean, he was truly touched by the kind of support that they had given him ever since. But I mean, what they did to him as he was, what they did for him and in support of him uh, during that period, right after the, the war, was extraordinary. What prompted you to leave the Senate then? Well, very frankly, um, I had always wanted to run for governor of California. A number of people said, what a wonderful, generous thing. Here you are giving up your Senate seat. You've just been reelected. You are in a six-year term. I, I, I must tell you, I'm glad that I did not know during the time that I was running for re-election to the Senate in 1988 that my friend George Duke Majin had decided not to run for re-election as governor. Um, I learned it almost immediately thereafter. Uh, his dear friend and mine... Um, Carl Similian called me. I was in the shower the Saturday after the election, and my wife said, Carl Similian's on the phone for you. And I said, well, tell him to hold on. I'm just rinsing off, and it'll towel down, and I'll take the call. So I did. And I was feeling quite chipper, having just won re-election by a comfortable margin, looking forward to a six-year term. And he said, congratulations. I said, thanks, Carl. And he said, 
I say, he said, I really, in a way, hate to call and tell you that uh, I hope that you're ready for the next run. And I said, the next run? I said, Carl, the next run's not until six years from now, or at least four. And he said, oh, no, I'm talking about the fact that you're going to have to be running for governor. And I said, what are you talking about? I said, if you haven't heard, we've got a governor. His name's Duke Majin. He's... Uh, he has a, a proud Armenian background like someone else I know. Carl, of course, is of the same uh, ancestry. He said, you obviously uh, are unaware of the fact that George has decided that he's not going to run again. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, exactly what I said. He's decided that he's had enough after two terms and he's going to leave office and uh, my friend that means you are our candidate you're the only one that can win and reapportionment is right around the corner there's a lot riding not just the leg not just the state legislature but also the the congressional delegation you know, we we're going to have something like 50 seats. I said, you're serious. He said, I am dead serious. And he said, I'll do everything I can to raise the money that you're going to need. But he said, you know, it's going to be Van de Camp or find Diane Feinstein. He said, um, get ready. Well, he turned out to be correct and all through the month of January, this was uh, this was right after the election, and I thought, good God, you know, I mean, I really had not even given that a remote thought. And through that period, I also got another call. I got a call from uh, President Bush, uh, who gave me the first early warning that John Tower's nomination as Secretary of Defense might be in trouble. He said, he said, uh, what are your plans between now and January? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I'm going to go to, uh, Gail and I were just uh, talking about the fact that we're looking forward to a, a trip to Australia, which will be the first for both of us. Bob Dole's invited us uh, on a CODEL, Congressional Delegation Trip. And he said, oh, he said, well, he said, gee, I hate to ask you not to go, but he said, uh, he said, you know, I think it's really important that some of the people who really know John, uh, some of you who served with him on the Armed Services Committee, be around in case the Democrats try and derail this nomination. And he said, I'm, I'm really worried about it. And I said, really? He said, yeah, he said, I, I think that they're going to go for him. And uh, so he said, I, I really think that you and uh, and Bill and John McCain ought to be uh, kind of troubleshooting, look around and see if you sent any opposition, and uh, we ought to get, get ready for it if it's going to come. I said, well... All right, 
I'll do that. So I didn't go to Australia. And uh, as it turned out, the president's, uh, the president-elect's concerns were well taken. They should not need to have been, but they were. Um, so, so when did you leave the Senate? Well, I left the Senate. It's kind of interesting because um, I did agonize about it because I, you know, had not thought about it. It was a major decision. Uh, I had wanted to run for governor once before. I had actually run once in 78, which is uh, largely a secret. Uh, It was a candidate... I was a candidate, but uh, in a campaign that became a haven for those who hate crowds. I uh, can look around the room when I announce that and see disbelief on the faces of many. But so I, the, the longer I thought about it and the more the pressure built as, uh, as it did, um, I began to talk to some of my colleagues in the Senate. As it turned out, there were 16 former governors then in the Senate. Eight Republicans, eight Democrats. And with a notable exception of two Democrats who had been the governors of small, poor southern states, all the others almost uniformly said, for God's sakes, do it. They said, it's a very different job, and as one of them said, it's it's a much better job than this one. And what he was really saying, I think, was that those who had been chief executives missed that role and found the legislative process, even in the... uh, exalted environs of the United States Senate to be, by times, frustrating and uh, not that being chief executive isn't by times, but frustrating in a different way. It's much slower. It is full of uncertainties. Um, If you're new to the process, Seniority uh, is a fact of life with which you must deal as someone who doesn't have any. And it can quickly change. Um, I, by the time I left the Senate, and I'd only been there eight years, I was fourth ranking on Senate Armed Services. But it's a very different role, and um, it's more demanding it is more challenging. Uh, frankly, for me, it was more fun. And it was a great privilege to be in the Senate for the eight years that I was privileged to serve there. Uh, and it was fun. I enjoyed it. And God knows, made friends for a lifetime. Uh, Bob was certainly one of them, but many others whom I still maintain contact with. <clears throat> but the job itself is very different. Uh, Bob would know that, which is why he ran for president. 
Um, so you announced how soon before you actually left the Senate that you were going? Um, it was after the first of the year, and I think um, it was it, it was at a meeting of the Republican State Committee. Uh, it was the only time. <laughs> In my experience, there's been a genuine draft because I was unopposed in the primary. <clears throat> and and so, how how much longer did you serve in the Senate before you left? Well, I served two years uh, because I was the uh, I was reelected in '88, and the gubernatorial election was in '90. But. <clears throat> California is not the nation, but it's a mini-nation. It's a large place, and um, as time wore on, um, I was required during the general election, and it, it, I, was, I was able pretty much during the primary to fulfill my duties uh, in the Senate. I didn't miss very many votes, but I missed some. You cannot avoid it. And um, in the general, uh, you wind up missing a great many. And uh, in fact, in the only debate that I had with Senator Feinstein, she made an issue of the fact that I was not doing my job as a senator, uh, missing key votes, and said that, in fact, if I would go back and do my job, she would be willing to suspend campaigning. And I said, okay, I'll take you up on that. And did, went back, and she wanted to have a second debate, and the logistics never worked because I was back doing my job. Um, we tried to set up a second one, but she did not suspend campaigning, and the media, um, however liberal they may or may not be, were all over her uh, for breaching her promise, which she had made in the debate on television. And um, I think it was a serious mistake for her. And of course, we had uh, some funsters in my campaign, who dogged her appearances thereafter with one of these big styrofoam hands uh, because she had written something in the palm of her hand and they would hoist that to the crowd. And I remember when I returned to the Senate, the first time I walked back into the cloakroom, John McCain came rushing up to me and he said, I know what she had in the palm of her hand. It was duty on her country. So, um, we're going to leapfrog now over your governorship, uh, except I do have one question there, and that is, did you maintain uh, a lot of contact with the National Party and with your friends in the Senate during the time you were, were governor? Um, I did, but um, 
you have to bear in mind, I was elected in 91, or I was elected in 90 and took office in January of 91. And so I had, um, for the first two years of George Bush the Elder's presidency, I was in the Senate. But uh, during the Gulf War, I had just taken office as governor. And for the last two years of his presidency, I was governor of California. And um, I, I maintained contact with uh, the president, certainly, um, and with his administration, um, with the committee, uh, and certainly tried to help. The, the thing that was difficult is that I think uh, he was ill-advised during his campaign for the presidency for re-election. Um, essentially, they wrote off California, and he really, with I think one, the exception of one appearance, did not come to California for the last four months, which I thought was uh, a terrible mistake because it essentially ceded all those electoral votes to Bill Clinton without making him pay anything for it. Okay. Uh, let's come to, I want to finish up with a few questions about your own presidential ambitions. Um, and I guess you began to take action on that in as early as 95. I did. I had read somewhere that uh, either your own people or yourself or others were speculating that you might be a vice presidential candidate with Dole or even be his national chairman. Was, was that something that was just speculation or were, you, were there any feelers sent out? No, certainly not from the not from the Dole campaign. Um, I, there were some people, I think, who did speculate about it and thought that a Dole-Wilson ticket with me running as his running mate would be a strong ticket. Um, uh, he never said it to me, but it was a couple of people told me that John Warner had said, God, I think that would be a terrific ticket. Um, I had a conversation with Bob really before I had decided to run and we talked and uh, uh, he knew that I was thinking about it because he knew that a lot of people had been urging me to do it and it really um came about my candidacy was uh, ill-starred because whatever the novelty of being a silent candidate for president, I don't recommend it because the novelty quickly wears off and uh, it's, it's just something that you can't do. Um, how, did, how did you feel uh, being trusted in that position? What, what was it like? Well, I said that by times being the chief executive is 
frustrating. I can think of little more frustrating than being a candidate without a voice. And what had happened is that I had developed a nodule on one of my vocal cords and went to a very fine surgeon and I said, you know, this is really becoming a very, not just annoying thing, but worse than that. If if it's not distracting to the audience, it's very distracting to me. I will be right in the middle of a speech and making a point and suddenly my voice will crack. And I said, you know, what's causing it? And he said, well, what's causing it is this nodule. And uh, I said, and what can we do about it? And he said, well, he said, if it were anyone else but you, I suppose I would tell you to simply not use your voice for several months. It might go away. Uh, Which was the experience that a very popular singer had. He got that advice from the same surgeon, canceled a year's bookings. It did go away. He sounds as good as he ever did today. Um, But I chose to have uh, what I didn't really regard as elective surgery. Two weeks after I had announced the exploratory committee and the surgeon <laughs> told me, he said, by the way, there are certain things that you shouldn't do. I, I said, what's the convalescence on this? And he said, well, he said, if you don't talk, it's probably going to be not too long, a couple of weeks, maybe a little longer. <clears throat> he said, but you can't talk. I said, all right, I understand that. And he said, and, and after that, he said, you really need to be careful um, He said, you should avoid these things. You shouldn't talk on the phone. You shouldn't talk in cars. You shouldn't talk in airplanes. And you should not talk at large gatherings, cocktail parties, where you have to raise your voice to be heard. I said, doctor, what the hell do you think I do? That's my life. I mean... He said, well, you're going to have to change that. So about two weeks later, or after the surgery, no, probably three weeks, not long enough, uh, I was invited with other potential candidates to appear before the GOPAC audience in Washington, D.C., and went with my general chairman, Craig Fuller, an old friend, went to Washington, and um, I had some rather distinguished surrogates. Craig was one. Uh, Secretary George Schultz was another. My wife was my most frequent one, um, which was a mixed blessing. She was a hell of a lot more charming uh, and certainly better looking, but 
and, and an excellent speaker, but I would, for a while, it was not unlike what Bob used to do with uh, Elizabeth. Um, we had sort of a contest where I was known to have written the speech, but she was delivering it, and once or twice while she was at the podium, I would scratch out some things or take a page out. Well, the audience thought that was funny. She didn't think it was too funny, particularly since I hadn't warned her that I was going to do it. Um, but anyway, what happened was that when the speech was over uh, with the GoPack audience, you know, he stayed at the podium. Craig stayed at the podium, and there were about three questions, and he looked at me beseechingly, and he'd just come on as my general chairman, and, you know, he had not been through any kind of a book of my positions. And they were asking him questions to which he simply didn't know the answer. And he quite rightly said that he did not know the answer. Well, that happened about three times, and then someone stood up and said, a man stood, and he said, well, he said, I'm terribly sorry that the governor's throat seems to be bothering him, which was a euphemism of an incredible dimension. But he said, I really think we're owed some answers. And like a fool, I rose to the bait and went to the podium and looked out over the sea of happy, smiling, upturned faces and opened my mouth and croaked. And at the first sound, these happy, smiling, upturned faces all looked stricken, horror-stricken. And I should have just quit then. Because it really didn't matter what I was saying all they will ever remember, if they remember it at all, was that the sound was one that uh, inspired the horror-stricken looks. Anyway, um, I didn't learn too much from that experience. Not long thereafter, I went to New York and at a fundraiser gave a similar performance. I mean, it started out all right and then wound up croaking. <clears throat> By the time it was over and I had barely left the podium, my hostess, the woman who had organized this, uh, a dear friend, Linda Robinson, came rushing up, pulling literally pulling by the hand a rather distinguished-looking gentleman who turned out to be the dean of the medical school at Columbia University. And she was in a state of visible agitation, and as she drew him up abreast of me, she said to him, she said, now you tell him, tell him, what you told me. And he looked quite embarrassed, and he said, Governor, he said, I'm terribly sorry, but what I told Mrs. Robinson is that I said unless he stops speaking, 
he's in danger of losing his voice forever, of doing permanent damage. And so at that point, I stopped speaking for about three months. And um, the first fundraising report, we did quite well. Uh, The second, we had tanked, and I will never forget the day that I heard from supporters in Boston and Washington, New York, and Atlanta, is it true? Is what true? Is the rumor true that you're going to have to get out of the race because you have throat cancer? And it was not true, but it was a very effective rumor because it totally chilled the fundraising and and effectively killed the campaign. Um, At which point, no surprise to anybody in my organization, I said, you know, if I'm going to get out of this, I'm going to support Bob and do everything I can for him. He's a fine guy. He's a dear friend. and You know, we're going to do that, and that's that's what happened. Um, and the one thing I did urge him, I said, for God's sake, don't make the mistake that George Bush did. You've got to come to California. You just cannot... I said, even if... Even if... He, if um, Clinton is ahead of you here. You cannot just abandon the state because they'll spend the money they would otherwise have to spend against you here, clubbing you someplace else like Ohio, which is what happened to George Bush the elder. <clears throat> and he did come out and with, uh, with Jack, and we campaign, and and he also uh, picked up on what were issues in California. And, um, you know, I think think it would have been very difficult, given the uh, popularity of an incumbent president, uh, to defeat Clinton. Bob's acceptance speech uh, in San Diego at the convention was marvelous. I mean, I I really was very proud of him and and thought he gave a terrific talk. Um, When you were committing yourself to to, to the candidacy, um, did you think that Dole was vulnerable or was that just not part of your calculus? Well, I'll tell you exactly what the calculus was. I had not intended to run and, in fact, got into some trouble myself because during uh, the debate that I had for re-election as governor in 1994 when I was running against Kathleen Brown, uh, who was a very good candidate. She was feisty and mediagenic, and she was good. Um... The format, at least in part, was the standard where representatives of the media, reporters, asked us questions. And I was asked by one, will you, if reelected, 
will you uh, serve out your term or will you be a candidate for a higher office? And I had anticipated that I would get the question and thought that it would be an opportunity to simply say, I will serve out the office and then use the time allotted to me under the format to do something else with it, either to rebut some point that Kathleen had made in an earlier question or to make a point at which uh, I thought she would be compelled to defend, which is exactly what I did. They asked the question, and I said no. And now I'd like to ask Ms. Brown something. And so I had not intended to do that. I went to a meeting, a national committee meeting, a fundraising committee meeting, um, that Haley Barber had asked me to attend in Aspen. And a great many people who were there said, listen, Bob Dole is a wonderful guy and tremendous legislative leader. We're not sure that he is going to be as effective uh, as a presidential candidate based on some of the appearances that we have seen him making. And What's more, we have read The Economist and uh, the article in which they said that you are the, the candidate that Clinton fears the most because you've been so critical of him on several of these issues, which seem to have great resonance. And <clears throat> I had been making some appearances um, in Washington on state business and uh, every time I went back the LA Times reporter would cover what I was doing and the last time he laughed and he said have you noticed that every time you're in town the White House holds a news conference I said you know I have noticed that of late he said yeah and he started to laugh he said I, got, I think you got him scared and um, I think that they were afraid of a couple of the issues that I had been uh, hitting him hard on. Even though I had said, in fairness to President Clinton, he's inherited uh, this situation from prior administrations and prior Congresses. Congress has been notably unresponsive. So conceding that this was not a situation of his own making, he has to do something about the border and what is happening in terms of illegal immigration, not just in California, not just in the border states, but it's beginning to spill over into the South and the Midwest. And if he doesn't deal with it, as only the federal government can, since it's exclusively constitutionally a federal responsibility, then we're going to see the four million in California become 
double that number. And we're going to see the 8 million that are estimated to be in the country now become 12 or 20, which has turned out to be true. Uh, and Bob, by the way, to his credit, agreed and picked up on that, as did Newt. Uh, when they became the leaders of the first Republican Congress in 50 years. Um, I got a lot of early response and a lot of fundraising response. And um, in fact, we were very heartened by the first fundraising report that we had to turn in. Um, so I had been in office for two years. We were, uh, I mean, for, excuse me, for four years and had produced the kind of stewardship in California which inspired people like George Schultz to uh, publicly declare, he said, if the federal government had achieved the kind of spending cuts and the sort of fiscal discipline at the national level that you have in California, uh, we would have dealt with the deficit long since. And um, so I had some strong encouragement. Uh, Governor Weld was my chairman in the Northeast. Uh, he was the governor of Massachusetts. Um, I just so when the and uh, and and I must admit that um, Governor, or excuse me, uh, President Clinton. Uh, had awakened my combative instincts, and I relished the contest with him. That was a very significant part of it, and um, I was persuaded by a great many people that I would probably give him a, a very serious challenge, and a number of people thought it successful. And uh, I have since made light of the fact that you should be careful what people tell you and promise you in the rarefied mountain air of Aspen, Colorado. <laughs> it can affect your judgment. What was your reaction when you heard that uh, Jack Kemp was the selected VP? Um, well, I was, I was a little surprised only by the fact that um, I didn't think they had been particularly close before, but I thought it was a good selection. I mean, Jack's, I think, uh, an, a very attractive guy. Um, he certainly uh, was someone who enjoyed campaigning. That was, was clear. Um, I thought that he would probably... Uh, appeal to some in the party, um, though I thought Bob would be appealing to most of the party. But, no, I thought it was a good choice, and I, I thought Jack would be uh, certainly a great deal more appealing than uh, Senator Gore, or vice, then Vice President Gore. 
Um, and I thought that he would probably be a, a, a helpful running mate to Bob. I think we need to bring this to a close now. Is that right? Yes, because um, the part. Uh, I had the privilege and the fun of being on a couple of Codells with Bob <clears throat> and with and with Elizabeth on, on one occasion. Uh, we went in 1985 on a trade mission to Asia. Uh, really, I think, an extraordinary trip. Uh, it was really a trip that was aimed at breaking down the protectionist barriers that we were experiencing in Japan and in Korea. And we weren't trading very much with China at that point, so the agenda there was different. It was really defense and foreign policy. And uh, Taiwan was very much an issue. And um, the only Democrat who came with us on that trip was Pat Moynihan. Uh, the others were Bill Cohen, uh, Dan Evans, Pete Domenici. Um, it, was a, it was a very good group, and uh, I knew we would enjoy it, and I thought it was also going to be an important trip, as it turned out to be. One of the things that occurred, while we were in China, uh, there was an accident uh, an auto accident in the second bus that was taking our entire party, this whole entourage, out to the Great Wall. And as a result of the auto accident, a young girl, I think probably 19 or so, very sweet, um, very attractive young girl, who had been assigned to us as an interpreter was severely injured and suffered uh, serious facial lacerations that would require plastic surgery. I mean, she was a very pretty little thing. And Bob was genuinely upset and so upset that he really threw his weight around a little bit because the Chinese uh, were saying, not to worry, not to worry. And he demanded um, that he be allowed to see the girl, be allowed through another interpreter, well, he didn't, he didn't need another interpreter but with her, but, but he wanted to make it clear that he felt responsibility, not for causing the accident, but she was part of our entourage and had been subjected to this as a result, and that he very much personally wanted to be involved in paying for the medical care that would restore her and made it very clear that he was going to stay on top of this and see 
that in fact she got the medical care that was necessary to restore her. And that was very clear. And I mean, I looked at the exchange of glances on the part of some of our hosts uh, who did not clearly, did not welcome this promise from him that he was going to persist in seeing to it that she got the care that she must have. Which I think said an awful lot about Bob Dole. Um, This was a young man, badly wounded, who'd not forgotten it. But it was also, I mean, just an extraordinary humanitarian gesture. And it also let these Chinese officials who were, you know, not going to be bothered with it, that they were going to be bothered with it because he was going to insist on it and make an international incident of it. It uh, it said a lot about Bob Dole. Thank you.